there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Michael Jackson released a song called Thriller, and just imagine how different his career might have been if it had been a hit. A bomb exploded in the U.S. Capitol, and thankfully no one was hurt. Maybe that was because the federal government was shut down. Terry Pratchett published The Color of Magic, the first book in his long-running and utterly charming Discworld series, and it was chaos out there. Beer executive Alfred Heineken was kidnapped and rescued by police in Amsterdam. Sam Shepard's School for Love opened on Broadway. The ninth space shuttle mission was launched, and at Heathrow Airport... A daring robbery with a Brinks Mat warehouse netted $38.7 million in gold bars, along with diamonds and cash and what may be one of the biggest heists of all time. Now that's a hell of a way to kick off November of 1983. Hi everybody, I'm Drew McQueenie and welcome to 80s All Over. I'm joined as always by my co-host Scott Weinberg. Scott, what's up? Hello, Drew. I noticed that in your uh, news recaps at the beginning, you you never talk about uh, like new uh, cartoons or candy bars or breakfast cereals. It's all very serious stuff. You're in the big leagues. Big league chew. Fan sized wads of great taste and shredded bubble gum stuffed into a giant stay fresh pouch. You're in the big leagues. Big league flavor and big league bubbles. You're into big league chew. It's very serious stuff. Very. But I'll throw in some breakfast cereal for you. I would appreciate that if you could maybe some Hanna-Barbera cartoons, something to that effect. The bakers are here. Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Cinnamon and sugar, we're baking up a bunch. Into Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Let's keep it light and roll right into our first film, a special presentation, because although it wasn't a theatrical event, it was an event in every other sense of the word. I'm talking, of course about the day after. These people have just seen a special preview of the day after. This is the most dramatic and realistic I've seen. Excellent. And I would consider it a privilege to have my daughter see this. I think everybody should see this thing and see it more than once. The day after, Sunday at 8, 7 Central and Mountain, parental discretion advised. You know, we had a very brief discussion uh, about this about a year ago. Or, are we going to cover TV movies? No. And then I think Bobby went, dot, 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 what about the day after? And we both went, oh, yeah, well, yeah, we got to include the day after because it is just that impactful. This is a really fantastic film directed by Nicholas Meyer, who uh, genre fans will, of course, know from Time After Time, Star Trek II, lots of great stuff. Very scary and sobering portrayal of uh, a nuclear war that is much different than most films in that it's not an action film or even a thriller 
It is a drama, Drew. Well, it's interesting because I think you wanted to also talk about there was a movie that PBS made that Paramount released for them called Testament. It was a day like any other. Televisions glowed, radios blared. Breakfasts were being served. Children were playing. Everything was as it should be. When suddenly, it could never be that way again. The two of them, both being November 1983, really speaks to where we were right then. And as much as any of the opening stuff we do, I think the movies really are a milestone of of sort of where we were socially. And I remember at 13, the conversation around whether or not families were going to let their kids watch the day after. And that was a big back and forth. And my parents really, really, really strongly felt like it would be a mistake to let us watch it. But I was already having nuclear nightmares. I was already afraid of this stuff. It was already part of the conversation. Right. It's like, how can you avoid it? On one hand, if I had a a 15-year-old kid, I'd be like, gosh. But on the other hand, it's like, how do you keep something that huge away from a smart kid? And I think that the difference in the two films, it's interesting that Testament's the one that went theatrical because it feels smaller. And it's more focused on just how you live after something like this goes down. And the day after feels like the more sensational sort of we, we're really trying to get this across what this is going to be like. And I think it's the exaggerated sped up version. But the day after gets that the nuclear war itself, the bombs going off is not the thing that is terrifying. It is living afterwards. Aside from the main plot, what I think draws the two films together is they both do very good jobs of, you know, creating empathy for these small town characters. Jane Alexander was nominated for her work in Testament. It is a little bit more low key and more harrowing the day after, though it does get personal. It still is trying to show a a town as a whole, whereas Testament is centered around this woman and all the people she knows. Testament, I think, nails the survivor's guilt more and the the horror of survival more. There is a scene where they're still trying to live normally to some degree after all this has happened. And they put on the school play of the Pied Piper and just watching the parents in that crowd. You feel like you're watching a a parent sitting at the deathbed of a child. It's so well done. It's so well directed. Uh, That whole sequence, I think some of it does waver a bit into melodrama, but it's well-intentioned and well-presented melodrama. Uh, I don't, neither of them are necessarily fun movies, they're no. both extremely well made, and and uh, I don't know if I would ever recommend them in a double feature, but it just seems like for for many years, the day after and Testament and another film in, from '84 called Threads, it's like they were often discussed as these harrowing films about the potentials of World War Three, and then. Yeah. They became a little bit outdated and a little kitschy. And, oh, remember when we were afraid of this? And, boy, with some distance, we feel safe. Now, all of a sudden, I hate to say it, but they're scary again in a new way. Let, let's move on to some some slightly lighter fare, Drew. All right? Oh, boy. This one is uh, sleazy. I was down for this. This is I, I looked at the credits, of course, beforehand. And I Paul Lynch directed Humongous and Prom Night. Sure. So I was slightly positive or optimistic for a film I'd never heard of called Cross Country. Between passion and violence, between madness and murder. It's me you should watch out for. Just don't find me! I know what you're up to, baby. 
passion driven to its ultimate climax. Cross country, the most dangerous trip you can take. Rated R. I remember the poster for this one. It's one of those that was always in video stores. I think you can honestly make the case that this is a sort of proto-erotic thriller. This is that genre that Joe Esterhaus later sort of made mainstream. and Yeah, and Showtime made into, uh, you know, an industry. Man, it is a sleazy movie. It's sleazy and dreary, and I like to call that dreasy. Richard Boehmer, who uh, we all know from uh, Twin Peaks and from a terrific career before that, Shows up here as a guy who's driving across country. Like in the title. There's a girl that he runs into at a bar. She and her boyfriend end up getting a ride with him. But the boyfriend's not really a boyfriend. Or is he? And do they just want a ride? Or Paul Lynch saw road games and said, I should make that smuttier. In the film's defense, it's got Michael Ironside. It does. As a cop who's chasing uh, a murderer. And we don't know who that murderer is. It could be any of those three people. Yeah. You know, if you... Just guess one and then flip to the very end of the movie. You could then move on to Peter Weller versus a giant rat in Of Unknown Origin? It haunts our cities. It's here. In this house. Now it wants them. If it doesn't scare you to death. It will find another way of unknown origin. Rated R opens Wednesday, November 23rd at a theater near you. Spoiler. Maybe I didn't want to know that we don't know where the rat came from before I watched the film. So now I sit down and as the film is going on, which is basically a 1983 version of Moby Dick, it's both boring and interesting, which I call bore interesting. I don't know. There's just, I wish there had been two random kills to prop up because it gets a little tedious. I like it more as kind of like a psychological mind game than something like a carnage fest, like deadly eyes or Willard. I have a friend, Craig Titley, who is Toshi's godfather. Oh, Oh, you have a friend. Uh, Craig is a big cigar smoker. And so we go to a cigar club that he is a member at because of that. I got really close to for the last few years of his life, George Cosmatos, who was, a lovely human being, genuinely one of the nicest guys. George Cosmatos directed uh, Rambo part two, Cobra. He directed the awesome tombstone. And he's also the father of the fantastic Panos Cosmatos who directed beyond the black rainbow and the upcoming Mandy, which is great. I asked Cosmatos a long nights talking about various things that he had done. And he was like an old school European guy who was a studio guy would work on whatever they assigned him to. Of Unknown Origin was not his like project, his passion project, but for him, the whole hook was it's a guy who has a big business deal that he's supposed to be working on who would rather do anything else who gets obsessed with solving a problem that ultimately really doesn't need to be solved. That version of the movie kind of entertains me as an idea. It's not really the film that, that you see here. And there's one ridiculous scene where he starts rattling off all this arcane knowledge about rats to a an oddly fascinated dinner party. And then the scene just cuts. So here's my theory on that scene is I think that the reason we got nightmares and, and deadly eyes and this and all of them right around. There must have been a documentary that aired on network TV about rats that had like all these facts about rats. You're going to take over. And 15 different people saw the same documentary and all started working to make their giant rat 
and rats taking over the world movie. And we got them all in a flush because of that damn documentary. That's how these little waves of things tend to occur. It reminds me of that song in Team Witch. All rat. Listen, um, Peter Weller is pretty good. You know, he, he's a he's method okay. guy. He gives a pretty intense performance. Occasionally goes over the top. Oh, and I also wanted to take this rat opportunity to make a uh, reference, a rat boner. Wow. I made in the last episode. I said that Deadly Eyes was based on a novel by Frank Herbert, when in fact it is based on a novel by James Herbert. They are brothers, fraternal brothers connected at the hip. That much I know for a fact. Drew, you know what I didn't know much about growing up, but became a big fan of once I saw like, I'm going to get you sucker and other things like that is black exploitation and watching this next film. I think it might've been, this may be, I think the last official black exploitation movie, at least until the resurgence with original gangsters, Fred Williamson's the big score. Fred Williamson huh? is detective Frank hooks. I don't trust nobody. First, they set him up. <laughs> then they put him down. You sure nobody in the park could have taken it? I don't know, a million bucks, it just doesn't disappear. It's gotta be somewhere. Now, they're gonna take him out. Fred Williamson, John Saxon, Richard Roundtree. People had just started coming out of their apartments now. Somebody had picked up their dough. Introducing Nancy Wilson as Angie, Joe Spinell. Okay, Hooks, what the hell do you want? Now he's out to settle the big score. I love that Fred Williamson is a cottage industry. And while I don't think Fred Williamson is the best actor from the black exploitation era... I think he is a consistent presence in movies. He's just good. And I think that like the Italian mafia films that guys like Fernando DeLeo made, there is an, a great deal of energy to these films that if you meet them on their terms and you realize what they were, when they were made, how they were made, they are consistently entertaining. I find these movies really easy to slip on and just watch almost any time. And my notes are basically does nothing new. It is conventional plot wise in every way, but it has some good action, some good actual banter. And it's got a great cast. The third film that I'd never heard of is in this episode. If you've ever wondered what happened to the bigger brother in E.T., who I think gives a great performance. Why don't you check out the obscure, odd, I am the cheese. Or as I like to call it, teenage prisoner. Uh, a spoiler for a movie you can't find if you try. A teenage boy is taking a bike ride uh, around a, a lovely area, and he is having memory vignettes of things that have happened to him throughout his life, mostly tragic. There's a young Cynthia Nixon floating around, and she's quite adds a little uh, energy to the proceedings. And then it ends. It goes so bonkers. I will. I'll leave it to you, Drew. I, I am fine with you spoiling it, and I'm fine with you not, but I'll leave it up to you. I'm not going to spoil it. I'll simply say that they go so far out of their way to cheat throughout the entire film to keep the secret that when they finally reveal the secret, it's like, well, all right. Now, my relationship, I totally remember this film and I remember the book because Robert Cormier wrote the novel and I bought the book from Book Fair. And it was because I knew that they put the, the cover out with the kid from E.T. on the cover. And I was like, "Ooh, I'm going to read the book and then I'm going to see the movie. I was about to make fun of you for that, but then I realized that I'm pretty sure I bought the novelization to Judge Reinhold's offbeat. No, dude, I was I was mentally ill. I would buy anything. I had the novelization for fucking Kid Co. I bought anything movie related. I had a sickness. And that makes a perfect 
segue wow. into our next film. Uh, this was not on my radar. This next one was not on my radar for many, many years. Drew, let us break down the infamous Italian horror film, Make Them Die Slowly, a.k.a. Cannibal Ferox. The following feature is one of the most violent films ever made. There are at least two dozen scenes of barbaric torture and sadistic cruelty graphically shown. If the presentation of disgusting and repulsive subject matter upsets you, please do not view this film. I had this one confused, as I think almost anybody did who grew up in this era, because I saw this on videotape that was a videotape duped by my friend's brother. And he had his collection of weird shit that mom and dad don't know he has. You mean like my next door neighbor that you love to introduce me to throwing stars and Frank Frazetta? Yes. Who sounds like the greatest kid of all time. Seriously. So I would borrow these tapes and they would be mislabeled or they wouldn't be labeled. So I had this one and Cannibal Holocaust. I always mix these two up. Yeah. And then when I finally caught up with Cannibal Holocaust many years later, I was kind of bored. This is infamous for many reasons, but boy, it's not boring. And the animal stuff is so profoundly upsetting that I, if you never make it past the fact that Umberto Lenzi kills actual animals on camera, uh, I don't blame you because, yeah, it's pretty insane. If you have a problem with simulated animal abuse, do not watch this film because it contains actual animal slaughter. Look, it is pure exploitation. This is if you're looking for the outer boundaries of exploitation cinema. There's a reason Cannibal Ferox is notorious, and it's every bit as gnarly as you think it's going to be. To, to use an 80s nomenclature, yeah, it is gnarlier than that. It is a direct inspiration uh, for Eli Ross' Green Inferno. It's about a, a bunch of idiots who wander into Paraguay and rainforest. Look, they want to find some cannibals, and boy, do they! What I find interesting is how in the same era, you know, just a decade earlier in the mid-'70s, you had the man called horse movies where you had these extreme scenes of what he had to go through as he was sort of uh, initiated and brought into the tribe. And in one movie you get it and it's played that way. And it's like really, really meant to be a dramatic transformation. In another movie, you get something that's played as this insane gore exploitation image. And then you get like Texas Chainsaw Massacre where you insinuate things, but almost never show anything. It's, not what you are doing, it's how you approach it. And just three films, you get three totally radically different ways you're treating these characters visually. Yeah, it comes from intent. The genius, in my opinion, of what Toby Hooper and, and Daniel Pearl pulled off on the original Chainsaw is that you walk out thinking you saw literal bodies cho- torn in half. And while you do see a handful of shocking moments, it's virtually bloodless. You see almost nothing. Whereas a movie like this, there's no subtlety here. It just wants to be shock value. If you're a horror fan who has to see it just to check it off your list and you can take it, more power to you. It is kind of scary. I personally, as an animal lover, have a real problem getting past the animal abuse. But it happens early in the film and it just leaves such a horrible taste in your mouth that any kind of like simulated torture just doesn't come close to capturing it. I'm not a big fan of this subgenre. I just I don't get anything from it. I think the animal death stuff is really shabby to put in a movie because that's real and that crosses a line for them and you don't give them any warning. It's not like the poster says featuring lots of animal death. No. So, so yeah. anyway, yeah, it, it's a fascinating little footnote in, in Italian horror history, I think, but not, not a very good film. But what is not worth checking out is the fourth of four 
trauma sex comedies. Drew, I'm going to turn it over to you for the first turn on. Yes, it's the first turn on, the new smash comedy that will make your wildest dreams come true. If you wish hard enough, your dream can come true. Wow. Yes, what happens when four innocent kids at summer camp and their older, more mature nature counselor... Oh, since Mia. ...get trapped in a cave-in and must wait to get rescued. They'll have their first turn-on. Oh, 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 oh. It's the first turn-on. Uh, they go in a cave and they smoke weed and they tell dirty stories. I don't know. It happened. Five-star scale. Squeeze play. Uh, one star. Waitress. One star. Stuck on you. One and a half stars. All right. And the first turn on. A half a star. All right. Why do I yell it like that? Because it's got two exclamation points. You never let me down, dude. I thought you were going to say an exclamation point. Yep. Drew, is that a young Vincent D'Onofrio in the first turn on? Uh, we're, I'm going to guess that he's like I am when somebody brings up fart the movie. Yeah. As Drew mentioned, Five idiots from a camp uh, get trapped in a cave because of a fart, and they they each spin a really dire, desperate, unfunny anecdote about losing their virginity, and it has the same kind of vignettes uh, format that Stuck on You does. One of the segments in this movie is so rapey and gross, like, when would this have been considered good for a comedy? Never. Is there anything else you want to say, Drew, about the first turn on? Um... Amityville 3D is our next movie. Warning. This time you'll be inside the world's most terrifying house. Amityville 3D. Box office draw, Tony Roberts in the lead. There's nothing like a Tony Roberts movie. The kids love him. Drew, I have some good news for you. Okay. This is the ninth of ten 3D films that we will ever cover. I'm very excited. The next one is not until 1985, sir. So I will say this. I think Amityville 3 D deserves some credit for trying to delve into the controversy surrounding the house itself. It's actually getting a little meta. Beyond that, cheap, dull, silly, awful special effects, PG of all things. It's got a young Meg Ryan. It's hilarious, cat. I want to have sex with a ghost. Amityville 2 got a lot of flack for being excessively uh, brutal, nihilistic, nasty. And then the almost the direct response is, oh, oh, people did. It bombed because it was rated R. This one has to be PG. And not only that, but we'll make it 3D. We know now that Ed Lorraine Warren are sort of a built-in franchise waiting to happen. And somebody finally figured it out years later with The Conjuring. Ed and Lorraine Warren went to Amityville. They were there for that investigation. Clearly, the characters in this movie are modeled after Ed and Lorraine Warren to some degree. Why didn't they just make the movie that was right there? Why do all this? The movie reminds me in some ways, especially once it gets to that Act 3 and the stuff with the daughter starts happening, it reminds me of Poltergeist 3, which is not a compliment. What What's funny, though, Drew, is if, um, if we erase the title and I said, hey, Drew, 1983 horror film starring Tony Roberts, Robert Joy, Tess Harper, Candy Clark, Lori Laughlin, and Meg Ryan. Like, we like every one of those actors. Yeah, not bad. Not a good movie, but yeah, not a bad cast. 
Yep, from the director of Conan the Destroyer. I know, I know. Richard Fleischer is one of those guys where you could be like, if I want to be nice, I could go nice. But if I want to go mean, I could go mean. And all you have to do is mention one of his titles. But Richard Fleischer, he directed that lot of crap. And he's one of those guys who I think because he was around for as long as he was, he had his moments. And like every now and then would direct something that would be like, oh, hey, that's pretty good. It's surprising to me that he did not direct 3D films the first time around because he feels like a guy who would have made that kind of gimmicky mid-50s thing. But, you know, he's got 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and Fantastic Voyage, and he's got some some solid films on his resume. He did the original Narrow Margin, which is a great thriller. I agree. Richard Fleischer directed lots of stuff, but late in his career – he got offered a bunch of easy money crap jobs, including Red Sonia, Conan the Destroyer. And of course, our beloved jazz singer. Nothing but respect for Richard Fleischer's career on the whole. Uh, obviously, a very good filmmaker given a, a good script and some money. But that's not what he got in Amityville 3. These next two, they are a blur to me. Let's see if you can do a better job of sorting out what feels like a, a hiccup of late 70s sci-fi burped up into mid-1983 for us. Let us discuss a film. Maybe 10 or 4% of our listening audience is going to go, oh, my God, I remember Wavelength. They are visitors from another galaxy. They are superior beings physically and mentally. Our government has kept them prisoners in suspended animation until one day they escape and their awesome power is unleashed on the world. Don't you understand what's happening here? What are they after? And when we find out... Will it be too late? Wavelength. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Directed by a guy named Mike Gray, who was the one of the writers, or the writer, of the China Syndrome. This, and then Code of Silence. And then he never worked again. Yeah. He also, but he also directed Second Unit on The Fugitive. This uh, is a David Carradine. No, Robert. Oh, my bad. There's so many Carradines. There are a lot of Carradines. This is a weird one, man. It's a low-budget sci-fi film about a bunker in the Hollywood Hills where they're keeping alien bodies. It's about a young couple that gets pulled into trying to set the aliens free, and Keenan Wynn is a guy who helped build the bunker and is at the edge of things. And the couple is played by Robert Carradine and Cherry Curry from The Runaways, rock star Cherry Curry. It's got a soundtrack by Tangerine Dream. Oh, easily my favorite thing. Best thing about the movie, and the movie... It tries at the beginning to to set a sort of low budget atmosphere. And it's not a bad movie. It's just kind of uh, it's very much feels like Spielberg light. And by light, I mean a little bit light on ideas and a little bit light on budget. Yeah, it feels to me like late 70s sci fi where it started around a stoned campfire one night out in the desert. And then nobody ever kind of blinked and decided not to make it. So here we are. Wavelength. Of our super small sci-fi obscurities, would you rank this above or below, say, Time Rider? Uh, above, I guess. How about Strange Invaders? Below. Wavelength isn't available. I don't think it has a distributor at all anymore. Uh, no. It's available in its entirety on YouTube. And if I'm not mistaken, uh was released by the company whose uh, logo plays now at the end of our episodes. That's how I remember it is one of those. So this next one, uh, Scott, let's let's do more sci-fi horror. Let's jump right in. What's up with uh, the being? In the distance, 
the town of Pottsville, Idaho. Dr. Jones, isn't the dumping of radioactive waste into the aquifer contaminating our drinking water? Exactly what do you mean by contamination? A small town. Strange and unexplained events are occurring. Well, the only explanation I have is that some sort of genetic freak. The ultimate terror has taken form. And Pottsville, Idaho same yeah the being is the debut feature of jackie kong she would go on to direct the terrible night patrol and the entertaining blood diner this has a very weird cast martin landau uh in one of his low points before uh, uh ed wood would make him uh, resurgent basically just a mutant creature attacking low budget people in a low budget town as we look at her other movies, you'll see that she sort of put together these casts of Hollywood fringe, people that were either on their way up or their way down. This is a ridiculous film. The monster is poorly shot. It's not like the worst design of all time, but yeah, you say shot as if like you were trying to think of a lesser word than a shot. She doesn't she doesn't really know how to light it or figure out how to make it look real. So she just sticks it in the frame occasionally. And oh, yeah, there it is. There's that thing. It's weird to watch Martin Landau in this era where nobody was using him and nobody considered him an asset. It's a little heartbreaking because we lost a lot of good years with that guy. Uh, you know, it's not good at all in any way, shape, form or fashion. Not even a little bit. The Smurfs in their entirety, including their very first motion picture entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Smurfs and the magic flute can go fuck itself. La, 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 Well, it's funny you do that song because that's not this Smurfs. I know. It's weird because if you only look at the poster or the marketing materials, you think this is part of the Hanna-Barbera canon, and it's not. Not at all. The character designs look very similar because that's what the Smurfs look like, but they don't have the voices. It's not Hanna-Barbera animation, and it's not any fun. Say what you will about the Hanna-Barbera ones, but they... Kids like those Smurfs cartoons. I mean, I was a bit old for Smurfs when they hit, but if Smurfs were around when I was eight, I would have watched that all day. When I was very, very young and I lived in Florida, I lived next door to a German family and my best friend, Ollie, lived next door. Chinese throwing stars and Frank Frazetta posters? He did not, but his family had the Strumpfs, which was the German Smurfs. They had all of these toys in like 1974. They had like the tree and they had all the Smurfs and they had collectible like variations. There were hundreds of Smurf toys. It was gigantic in Germany. So in 1976, when this feature film was made, it was a big deal in Germany. There was no American market for it yet. The Hanna-Barbera series happened. This finally meant something to somebody and they picked it up. What's crazy is when you watch this. It is 22 minutes into this movie before they even hinted the existence of Smurfs. I think it might be longer. Then it is 33 minutes before they even say the word and then they make their entrance. Then they're only in it for about 15 or 16 minutes. And then it comes back to this story about these obnoxious human characters and a magic flute and nobody will give a shit. It's the ultimate cynical cash in. We're going to call this a flashback review. We're going to go back in time and pretend 10 year old Scott Weinberg just saw Smurfs and the magic flute. What the fuck is this? They ripped me off. There's no Smurfs in this shit. This is worse than Ewok's Caravan of Courage. I'm out. Peace. Mic drop. 
I, your dad is just standing there shocked right now. Like, I, I wouldn't have brought him to the Smurfs if I knew he was going to do that. Good Lord. This was interminable. I, I don't know if uh, this is considered like Rosetta Stone for Smurf movie fans. I don't know if this is considered high art to the people who love the Smurfs. No. But uh, boy, oh boy. Um, it's not terrible animation in terms of actual quality, but horrible, horrible music. And like I said, human characters for most of the film that you will never, ever want to see or hear from again. La, 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 let's move on to another fucking movie. Oh, my God. This is no better. But here we go. From one exploitation of a brand to another. Here's Maddie Simmons trying to cash in on National Lampoon after every single person who made National Lampoon interesting or funny had left the company in the dust. And the result? Movie Madness. At the busy National Lampoon offices in Washington, D.C., we've been working for years to create our first film since National Lampoon's Animal House. Our Pulitzer Prize-winning National Lampoon writers have worked tirelessly to create a script that will bring you laughter, tears, and repulsion. And now, coming this summer to a theater near you, National Lampoon goes to the movies. Samuel Starkman, this is the police. A picture with drama. You can't touch me, coppers! I got a lawyer! Romance. I feel happy with you. And I with you. All right, break it up, break it up. A movie that you will remember for its poignant moments, not merely for its laughs. to be called National Lampoon goes to the movies coming this summer from United Artists the Trans-America Company Oh, God. Again, I am so fascinated by certain obscurities. I'm, I'm as fascinated by this as I am by student bodies, although I much prefer, I think student bodies is actually funny. This is technically National Lampoon's second film after Animal House. It was shot in 81. It released in late 83. It seems to be going for like the Kentucky Fried movie vibe. This feels like guys who got a deal to write a movie had no idea how to write a movie and said, uh, let's do the least amount of work possible and we'll each do a 20-some minute sketch. And they all turned in their first draft and despite a really fun cast, Peter Riegert, uh, Candy Clark, Margaret Witten, Fred Willard, Christopher Lloyd pops up in this. I mean, it's got some really fun people in it, but it's astonishingly unfunny. The problem is that Matty Simmons was the guy that inherited the brand after the guys who started the magazine walked away and cashed out. He really got stuck with something that was almost impossible to then keep alive because he didn't get it. He was a money guy. To him, National Lampoon was just a name that you could throw on things. But Bob Giraldi and Henry Jaglum have nothing to do with National Lampoon. Some of the writers who worked on this did, like Sherry Flanagan, for example. But the way this was developed was they turned in a ton of scripts and it was supposed to be like you spent all day watching movies and there were something like nine segments or 10 segments originally, it would have been a, a five hour movie and be impossible for them to finance. So they ended up just honing it down to the three that you see in the finished film, two of which are directed by Bob Giraldi, who was a big commercial director, probably best known for Billy Jean, the music video and Henry Jaglum, who is like a low rent Woody Allen wannabe. And I know right now there's people yelling at me. We're going to get into Henry Jaglum in uh, the next year of this podcast. And uh, 
I'm not a fan. So if you are, buckle up. It's not going to be a love fest here. I think his segment is the worst of them. It's the last one with Robbie Benson and Richard Widmark. I guess the joke is that they're the old cop who's seen everything and the young kid, and they're supposed to team up and stop a serial killer who's Christopher Lloyd. It is absolutely without any demonstrable sense of pacing, staging, understanding, comedy, performance. It's bafflingly awful. Yeah, I think the word you were looking for is demonstrable, sir. And you are dead on. I wrote on the third segment. Looks like everything was shot in one take with next to no blocking. Just kind of like, all right, where walk where you think you should walk. Go, you know, stand where you think. It's atrocious. I would love to read a book about the making of this and like class reunion and just the the real misfires of National Lampoon. Because, yeah, I love Animal House. I love Vacation. But I'm fascinated by these stinkers that came and went. I equally would love to read, maybe even love to write the book about the making of Deal of the Century. It's got Chevy Chase, chickens, cash, copters, commandos, carts, tarts, big spills, cheap thrills, trucks on hills, hot flames, fast planes. And most of all, it has Chevy Chase with his all-star cast making the Deal of the Century rated PG. Starts Friday, November 4th at a theater near you. What is this movie? First of all, let's just go into the history. You got Paul Brickman adapting a book and was was supposed to direct it, was very close to directing it, but Risky Business was taking too long, and they had to go back and do reshoots on Risky Business, and he had to step off this film. At that point, Chevy Chase came on board. At that point, they started moving forward. I have no idea. And I reached out to him on Twitter the other day to ask him about it. I knew we wouldn't get an answer. But I reached out to Freakin just to ask him, at what point did he jump on? And here's the thing. When he wrote his book about his career, this is the only film, this and The Guardian, that he doesn't mention at all. He doesn't even say the title in the book. So clearly not an experience that he's in any rush to go back and live through again. It honestly feels like, oh, shit, we have to go into production in two weeks. Who's not working this half year? Yeah. Yeah. William Friedkin. All right. It has to do with guns. He's a guy. All right. That's close enough. From the director of the French Connection comes whatever the fuck this is. Chevy Chase plays an arms dealer. Uh, Gregory Hines is his born again Christian friend who's trying to get out of the business. And Sigourney Weaver is a woman who is sort of in the business, maybe, and maybe isn't who she represents herself as. And it's all meant to be hilarious. And like wrong is right never even lays out the fundamentals of how this world works enough to make us give a shit. Exactly. It's like, what does this take place in a real world, the slightly elevated world of political satire or in a cartoon world? I don't yeah. I can't tell what. Well, and they can't either. Like, that's the biggest problem is totally this thing lurches from style to style. It's hard to believe visually that it is freaking because it is a unrelentingly ugly movie. This is right around the era where I actually started dividing films into theater films or video films. I don't remember trailers for this. I don't remember marketing for this, but I do remember the giant Warner Brothers clamshell when it hit home video. It was like the tree that fell in the woods, man. It made no sound when it came out. Just somehow in my mind sparked a vague memory. Obviously, you remember Premiere Magazine. Yeah. They would do their summer preview. And their their little uh, bracket, their little box for Deal of the Century had it was a shot of Chevy Chase kind of lounging on a giant flower bed in front of a military base. 
And I remember reading it and going, oh, Chevy Chase comedy. Yeah. There's nothing funny about early 80s military satires. Wait till we get to best defense next year. Good fucking God. Well, and it's weird because this is the era where it would make sense for Hollywood to have gotten that shit right. I just last night watched in preparation for something we'll be talking about soon. I watched the 1942 to be or not to be. What blew my mind was that Lubitsch made that film while Adolf Hitler was still alive and in Europe. That's crazy to me that he was so satirically on the money that he was and brave enough to, while it was happening, and clear it enough to nail it the way he did in that film. Whereas in the early 80s, I don't think satirists knew what they were even aiming at. They didn't know how to nail Reagan. They didn't know how to nail the new conservatism. They didn't know how to make fun of the Cold War. And you mentioned wrong is right. We should do a bonus episode just on military satires. It's like you got to be a fucking surgeon to make that funny. And these men, these people making these movies, just it's not, oh, we're going to go to a little uh, third world country and accidentally blow up a, a, a mosque. Ha 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 ha. They all in their heads have Dr. Strangelove as what they think they're making. They, yeah, I was thinking more like this wants to be the military version of Network, uh, something like that. Ugly, ugly, ugly. And uh, I'm glad we'll get to better, better Friedkin films. And our apologies to the people out there who champion Deal of the Century. I don't believe there is anybody. I can't Must be. believe. Some people no. out there love Chevy so much. No, no. I refuse to accept that there is a – I know that every movie is somebody's favorite movie. I can't imagine there's an actual cult for Deal of the Century. All right. Hey. Now we move on to a film very similar to Deal of the Century. Scotty, can you hear me? It stars Barbara Streisand as an arms dealer in 1930s Poland who desp- – just kidding. She is a woman who wants to study yeshiva and in old school Jewish law. That is strictly verboten, which is the German way of saying forbidden. And I've been Jewish my entire life and a film fan my entire life. And I've never seen Yentl. She was born into a time when the world of study belonged only to men. Yentl for the thousandth time, men and women have different obligations, I know, but don't ask why. Her desire to learn was so great that to satisfy herself inside, she pretended to be a man outside. So that all the things she wanted to be, I'm a student, he could be. And yet, in all the books she read, nothing could prepare her. For her feelings as a woman. I can't breathe. Or what was in store for her as a man. Nothing's impossible. Why do you always have to be different? Yentl. Scotty, can you hear me? Yes, you I can. <laughs> Don't make fun of my religion, dude. How dare you? Wait, is, is Yentl your religion? Uh, yeah, I, it's just... Babs first directorial effort. And I think after a rocky start, it becomes a very good film. A man dressing as a woman in Tootsie addresses certain interesting themes. A woman dressing as a man in this setting it introduces many interesting things that, you know, a film like Tootsie or some like it hot doesn't when she's dealing with the early segment in Poland, it feels a little stagey and a little, but uh, at about the half hour point, it really seems like that's when her confidence kicks in. And from then on, uh, once it gets into Yentl's uh, misadventures with Mandy Patinkin as a man she loves, but obviously can't admit she loves and Amy Irving, 
as the young woman who loves Mandy Patinkin, but maybe doesn't, that whole interplay between the three of them is just fantastic. It's interesting because my my memory of this coming out was the conversation was entirely around, isn't it cute that Barbara Streisand wants to direct? And there was a condescending attitude from the press towards her that was, I think, fairly profound. Looking at it now, I am insulted on her behalf because I think it's clear she's a director. She is interested in the little details of the people that she's shooting. And I think the best stuff in this film is just the interplay between her and Patinkin, between her and Irving, and the way she shoots those those personal moments. She's very good at getting out of her own way and letting the cast, whether it's her, whether it's Patinkin, whether it's Irving, shine. Again, I I remember some of the knock being that she's egotistic or that her films are about celebrating her, but she is the movie star. And what she understands is her own iconography. She gets what makes Barbara Streisand an icon. And so when she shoots that and when she shoots the musical numbers or when she shoots the romantic scenes or when she wants a glamour close up of Barbara Streisand, who better to understand what that impact should be for her? And I think... She does that really well, and I I do like the music. My biggest problem with the film is I think uh, once it starts to get into the melodrama in the last third, it kind of does it for a while. It spins its wheels for a while. Yeah, I don't disagree. I think it does, uh, even though I think it's a very good film. I think it might be even better, 15 minutes shorter. It's based on a play by uh, Isaac Bashiva Singer and Leia Napolin. What I find very interesting about this movie is the confidence in which she directs herself. I guess if you don't like Barbara Streisand, that would prickle you and bother you. At this point in her career, she is a billion record selling megastar around the world. She knows her fans want to see her, not exclusively, but they want to see her singing earnestly in camera in her voice. It's an interesting musical in that she's the only character who sings ever. It's all internal. Some people might not like that approach. I personally, watching it as a character study, thought it was fantastic. Yeah, it's not meant to be diegetic, and it's not meant to be everybody expressing their internal uh, soundtrack. It is her, and it's her journey, so it's simply her version of narration. It's the closest thing to a novelistic voice for Streisand as a singer that I think you can get. And the other thing that I think is interesting about the film, there's a version of this that is simply a girl power. Hey, you said I can't do it because I'm a woman, so I'm going to do it because I'm a woman. That's not really what this is about. This is about somebody who has a passion for something and they are shut off because of societal roles. And gender is part of it, certainly. But her passion isn't simply to take down the gender role. It is genuinely a passion for scripture and a passion for an intellectual life. And what she wants, she's willing to put, make herself, uh, put herself at risk and change her identity to get what she wants. Well, she's also willing to give up a life of children and a life of traditional marriage. And to her, that knowledge and the ability to then serve that purpose in her community is of more value than her playing the role of wife or mother. The original short story, Isaac Bashevis Singer's short story, Yentwell the Yeshiva Boy, which the play was then based on, is I think even more about why you would live a selfless life of religion and why it would lead you to step outside of the role that you were born into. She explored the romantic, and part of that is simply the casting of Mandy Patinkin and Amy Irving. They're both really young and lovely in this, and Patinkin, I think, is great. He plays the anger that Charles Durning didn't in Tootsie. And in Tootsie, we had that lovely moment where, when they finally speak about it, Durning's not angry at all. Durning's a little embarrassed, but he's not angry. 
I think the anger that we see from Tinkin here is because of how much more intimate their relationship was and how much more they leaned on one another that it feels like more of a betrayal. It's it's a very real relationship. And I and I think when the mask finally gets pulled off, I think everybody behaves the way they really would, which can be very difficult in these movies. Yeah, also a great uh, performance in the first half of the film by Nehemiah Persoff as her father, the rabbi. Yeah. Uh, he's just very warm and and both stern in how you should follow these ancient laws, but also he's that's her daughter, and if she wants to learn, he's going to let her learn. What, what I liked about the movie is that Obviously, Barbara Streisand is Jewish, knows more about Jewish culture than I do. And she's both reverent and critical of our religion. And in, in like, there are things about Judaism that she seems to respect very much. And there are things about the religion she finds maddening and frustrating. I found it very uh, comfortable film as if it was a story I was being told by my beloved late grandmother. Well, I know that for a lot of uh, families and for a lot of people, Yentl is an annual tradition. And I know in my house, an annual tradition was our next film, a night in heaven. Live the dancing. Hear the music. Feel the heat. When the feeling hit them, there was no place hotter than heaven. A night in heaven. Rated R. Now playing at a selected theater near you. So, Drew, what you're saying is that once a year, you and your family would get together to watch Leslie Ann Warren drool over Christopher Atkins in John Avelson's A Night in Heaven. That's what you're telling me. And I think it's because, really, my grandmother and my great-grandmother really identified with Joan Tewksbury's empowering story of a professor who realizes she's going to fuck the grades right out of her young student. Uh, dude, this this movie... <laughs> We're doing a lot of from the directors of this week, but as hard as it is to believe that Deal of the Century is from the director of The French Connection, A Night in Heaven from the director of Rocky is equally difficult to swallow. I think A Night in Heaven was always meant to be a romantic drama about an, an unhappy woman who has an affair with someone she shouldn't. Yeah. And halfway through production, somebody saw Flashdance and saw the box office numbers and went, okay, gender switch, Flashdance. And that's what I think happened because Joan Tewksbury wrote Nashville. Lisa was walking in and out of the room while this one was playing and rolling her eyes every time. She came in for the scene that comes late in the film where Leslie Ann Warren's husband finally squares up with uh, Christopher Atkins. It's literally the only scene in the movie where this guy even has a pulse. Structurally speaking, it's his movie because it starts with him and it keeps cutting back to him, but he is so dull that your eyes will slip off of him while you're looking at him. Why are we following this guy's subplot? Dude, the whole first 15 minutes is at Cape Canaveral, which is baffling. It's got a small performance by a an actress I love, Carrie Snodgrass. It has Andy Garcia as a bartender, and it has one wacko ending, which I won't spoil, because if you ever want to just watch some, you know, mildly smutty trash, you might enjoy the ending of... A Night in Heaven. So, uh, Scott, this next movie is an obscurity, and it's kind of a shame because I, I'm going to go ahead and say it. I, I have a bit of a soft spot for Nate and Hayes. It was a busy year for Bully Hayes and the Reverend Nate. They met a queen and had dinner with a king. They fell off a bridge, took to the air, and took on the German Navy. Fire! Have the time of your life with Nate and Hayes. You're going to like it. 
Rated PG. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I'm glad because one of our recent not five-star reviews on 80s All Over on iTunes, leave a review, please, mentioned that we agree too often. And I am glad to say I think Nathan Hayes, known overseas as Savage Island, <laughs> is atrocious. It is a mirthless tonal mess. It is as bad as Polanski's Pirates, co-written by John Hughes, which I think might be part of the reason you're giving it a slight break. And uh, I will say that my research indicates this was a very influential film on the New Zealand film industry. So I'm glad that this terrible, non-funny pirate comedy helped get New Zealand on the map because we got lots of great films out of New Zealand. This ain't one. When I say I have a soft spot for it, I mean a soft spot. It's not a great movie, but I do think there is an energy to it. Wrong. Okay. It's not a pirate movie. It's not really a typical swashbuckler. Tommy Lee Jones is taking Michael O'Keefe and his uh, missionary girlfriend to an island where they're going to uh, live and work and uh, give God to the natives. She gets kidnapped. There's bad pirates. Uh, Michael O'Keefe blames Tommy Lee Jones at first, and then they team up. The one thing that I like about it, there's glimmers of this in the script where they're trying to sort of take you through what typically was the world of the swashbuckler, but show you the ugly underside of it. This movie gets into the slave trade, which everybody keeps saying throughout doesn't exist still. There is no slave trade, but there is, and it's constantly happening behind that door or inside that barn. And it's that era where we were pretending we were more civilized, but we weren't quite. And I like that stuff that's in this film. Uh, David O'Dell, who co-wrote uh, The Dark Crystal and Supergirl and some of the others in the in the 80s, was one of the writers on this. Scott said John Hughes was one of the writers on this. I feel like there is a version of this film that could have worked. The biggest problem is Ferdinand Fairfax, the director, does not have a feel for the epic fun of this. Say it again. Ferdinand Fairfax. Maybe and, the best alliterative director name since just Jaken. He has a long career of making, you know, fairly well-regarded TV movies. I don't think he had the epic sort of energy for this. If this had a great action crew, I think they could have gotten there. I just, I think they were hamstrung by some big choices. Yeah, also, I, I was looking forward to this one because I had vague, fun matinee memories of it. And boy, within an hour, I was like, well, I must have not, I must have been stoned that year. If you remember it fondly, maybe leave it there. Let's move on to uh, a stark and shocking film that I saw many years ago. And I don't think it really struck me uh, of how powerful it really is. Let's talk about Bob Fosse's final film. Star 80. I have this feeling about Dorothy. She's going to be a big star. They're going to give me $10,000 for having my picture taken. Dorothy is every man's fantasy. Sit down. Dorothy, you just can't let him do this to you. If you want her, pal, you can have her. But you're going to have to pay. Star 80. Rated R. Jeremy Smith friend of ours has called this the last film of the 70s, and I think he can make a case for that. This is a profoundly upsetting movie, and I think a great movie about the industry of women, the men that run that industry, and what it is that they want from them, and how they get it, and how they chew these women up and then dispose of them. You and I have both taken to task the producer husband of Pia Zadora and John Derrick in, in relation to his wife, oh, John yeah. Derrick. To me, this is the final word on that kind of relationship, as in I bought a wife and I'm going to make you look at her naked. This is the fuck you to John Derrick. That's what this movie is. It's a fuck you to people like him. 
And not just him, even though they had to change his name, uh, clearly the director character in this movie is Peter Bogdanovich. who was having a relationship with Stratton when she was killed and uh, had just directed her and they all laughed and genuinely thought he was going to be making movies with her for a while. Cliff Robertson is playing Hugh Hefner. And what I found most damning in the film is the sequence after Eric Roberts has killed Dorothy and we're cutting around town. Hugh Hefner is getting a magazine ready with nude photos of Dorothy. And in another room, there's Peter Bogdanovich's character, and he's getting the film together with footage of Dorothy. And even though she's already dead and has just had her face blown off in rooms all over L.A., there's men still exploiting her, still milking things out of her image, still using her. And to me, that sequence, Bob Fosse's contempt and loathing for these men Fosse must have fucking hated Hugh Hefner, must have hated him. This is an indictment of a system that uses and destroys people. And it's fascinating. I I can't say enough about, well, Hemingway, very good performance as Dorothy Stratton. She's terrific. She's so sweet. But I don't want to lessen her performance because it's the best work she's ever done. Let's talk for a minute about Eric Roberts and not only his feral, insecure, devastating performance, but also Bob Fosse's willingness to show the human, not the empathetic, not the sympathetic, but the human being inside of a monster. Well, he shows the weakness. And that's the thing is Fosse is so smart about we're still having this conversation about toxic manhood now and toxic masculinity. Fosse must have seen through this shit from the very beginning because this movie dissects this guy, dissects Paul Snyder, gets the naked, ugly little boy terrified heart of being left behind. What it also gets right is the pimp mentality. And the thing that is the pimp mentality about it is you have nothing. You are nothing. You have nothing to offer the world. You have no talent. You have no skill. Your only asset is your connection to somebody with talent or beauty. She is not you. She is not yours. She does not define you. She cannot be your thing. And yet that's what these guys are, is they are looking for somebody that will carry them into the life that they want. They don't want to do the work. They just want to be carried in by this person. He just wants fame. He doesn't want fame for any reason. He just wants fame. You know, it's kind of easy to write a, a man who's overbearing and, and domineering and monstrous and basically a stalker who's also your boyfriend. But he insists that we don't just make him a simple one note monster. Yeah. And the, the weird irony of a man being this insecure about losing his wife or his lover, but yet also foisting her into the world where people look at her as as a sexual object. And I want to go back for a moment because, yeah, I, I think Roberts has the role here that is the showcase role. It's And it's a brave performance by Eric Roberts who was attracted to characters that were defined by weakness or by some flaw. I think it's easy to get confused about the actor and the character sometimes. And I think Eric Roberts got this air of a flawed or damaged guy. I think he's brilliant at portraying them. But I do want to point out throughout her career, Hemingway has been dismissed. I think the work she does with Dorothy Stratton here is layered. I think it is nuanced. I think it is aware. I think Hemingway went through this industry, saw her and her sister both get used by this industry in very particular ways. And she saw men come at both of them. And she saw the ugliest side of this industry. By the time she got to play this, the idea that she could turn the innocence of Dorothy Stratton on, think of the prom scene where she comes downstairs, they're going to go to prom and she is this gawky 17-year-old, like a baby deer, still trying to figure out how to walk in this body she has. And 
This is a girl who, by this point, has already been down the road of she's an internationally successful model, and Hemingway had lived this life already. She is so good at getting back to that person who is untouched by this business and showing you what Dorothy was and how unprepared she was, not just for the business, but for him. But she's never dumb. She's very naive and very trusting, but she's never written or portrayed as a dummy. That That is uh, probably the, the best thing about the character. I said earlier, it's not a lot of heavy lifting. could just be that she did a lot more subtle acting than I thought. It's a haunting movie. I, I don't think I'll ever watch it again. But if you, if you really want to see an angry movie uh, about something that people deserve to be angry about, check out Star 80. Okay, so let's see if we can do this next one in one line. Running Brave has Robbie Benson playing an American Indian who won at the Olympics. Robbie Robbie Benson. Robbie Benson, who is, I believe, built entirely out of white bread. I was on a set one time, and Robbie Benson was cut deeply and bled mayonnaise. And, and I'm sorry, I know it's an easy word to dismiss a film with, but for a film about racism and sports, holy shit, this thing has no pulse. I was also bored, but in a very different way, from the final film by action great Sam Peckinpah. Let's see if we can't dissect what went wrong with the Osterman Weekend. What would you do if someone proved to you that your three closest friends are Soviet agents? These people represent a grave threat to the security of the United States of America. I won't betray my friends. You don't have any friends, Tim. You tell me what I'm mixed up in. Robert Ludlum's bestseller, The Osterman Weekend, directed by Sam Peckinpah, rated R. This is a case of an artist in decline who was basically propped up by some friends in order to get him working again. And I admire that, but Peckinpah shouldn't have been working. And he was in no condition to make this movie. Uh, you know, Robert Ludlum, who wrote the book, he did a lot of big spy fiction in the late 70s. And the premise here is that the CIA is looking for spies. And so they set somebody up to set his friends up and then they watch to see how people react. It's like the big chill but the KGB thinks one or two of them are a Russian mole. That's exactly what it is. It's the big chill if the CIA suspected William Hurt of being a spy and they were going to prove it. Women, not very important in this film, sorry to say. Well, that's peck and paw for you. It's John Hurt, Burt Lancaster, Rucker Hauer, Dennis Hopper, and Craig T. Nelson. It's well, insane. I want to love this movie. I love the premise. It's so Dude, aimless. It's, it's not only aimless, it's ugly. It's barely competent in places in a way that really speaks to the pain that Peckinpah must have been in. It does not feel like a film that he had his mind or his heart in. As I'm reading up on Sam Peckinpah, I, I couldn't help but think he would never work in today's world. Oh, no, not at all. He wasn't just a drunk. He was an abusive guy. Oh, he was a nightmare. And this is where you get into the art and artist conversation, because I think his films are reflective of who he was. And I think his films are loaded with really ugly, difficult racial and gender politics. And I think I don't watch a Sam Peckinpah film and come away and go, yep, that's exactly right. That's how I feel about everybody. They're misanthropic and ugly. And I think that, unfortunately, as he felt abused by the system. And look, a lot of that was his own making. He was not a filmmaker who was easy to collaborate with. And he created as many problems for himself as, as anybody else did. Then you get a chip on your shoulder when you're making a movie from that position of, well, they're going to fuck me in the end. So why should I put my heart and soul into it? You get this. It's a movie that feels like a, a movie made by a guy who didn't want to be on the set. And at the same time knew that if he wasn't on that set, he might die. 
shortly after this film. I think it was a year later that he did pass away. So rest in peace, Sam Peckinpah. We will yep. always have your great films. If you want to, you know, dig this one up. It is an obscurity. It does have a great cast. I'll give it that. Now we're going to move on to a film that is one of my very favorite films of 1983. We mentioned a couple of movies ago and my affection for Yentl that I am indeed a person of Jewish descent. And yet I have always been in love with Bob Clark's A Christmas Story. MGM presents A Christmas Story. Perfect. Ah! Uncle. Uncle! 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 Come on! The movie that sends up Santa Claus. Oh, oh, A Christmas Story rated PG. Starts Friday at a theater near you. So funny because I remember when this came out, uh, we had Bill Roseman on as a guest uh, for one of the bonus episodes, my childhood friend. And uh, this was a movie that his mom took us to Atlanta to see. We lived in Chattanooga at the time. It was one of those perfect situations where we didn't really know what the movie was going to be. It was just like, okay, we want to go see something. The first trailer, in fact, the only trailer that played before it was the first teaser trailer for Ghostbusters. And I remember at the end of that, turning to Bill and being like, oh, my God, what is that? And he was like, I know. And then a Christmas story happened. And it was a perfect afternoon. It was one of those moments where we came out the other side with a brand new favorite thing. And yet it wasn't a giant hit when it came out. No, no, it has now become a Christmas staple, second only to It's a Wonderful Life. TBS sometimes plays it 24 hours in a row. I remember very clearly, I think it was the TV commercial that has the bit where Santa kind of puts his foot on the kid's face. Ho, ho, ho. For some reason, the way that was shot made me think this is a Christmas movie like Airplane. I think that's kind of how they sold it, too. Yeah. My sister and I went to see it the day, uh, Saturday afternoon, open Friday. We saw it Saturday afternoon. I don't think I ever even cared that it wasn't like Airplane. I was in love. My parents, when I was a kid, had a giant Norman Rockwell book. Probably has every post cover he ever did. And I I am an unabashed fan. And to me, this movie, what Gene Shepard and Bob Clark manage here is they evoke what I think Norman Rockwell at his sweetest moments was trying to evoke. Nostalgia is not perfect. It's a memory of safe. It's a memory of warm. It's a memory of family and laughs and presence. That's what nostalgia is. It's not, oh, that that song came out a year later. That's anachronistic. It doesn't matter. It's saying this was this man's childhood. And I think this film does a wonderful job of creating his family, this setting. This or Scrooged, still my very favorite Christmas movie. I would recommend it to absolutely anyone. In general, I think my favorite thing about Gene Shepard's work and about the way Bob Clark adapted it here, by using the florid, wonderful, rich language of Gene Shepard as an older man, looking back at childhood against the actual images of childhood, that contrast, that sort of bouncing one off the other is what is so wonderful. And when I showed this to my kids about two years ago, because I didn't want to burn them out and have it be something they watched from when they were too young to even get it. Part of what I loved was watching them react to that language. And for me, the the, the great one is the, the scene with the hubcap and the, the bolts and the way he describes it, the F dash dash dash, the granddaddy of them all, the panic that is in his voice as he tells that story, 
that's what's so wonderful about Gene Shepard's work. His voice think, is wonderful. It's yeah. just so it's so full of life, and and it's not just that the words are good. It's just that the 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 energy in his he reads them perfectly. Yeah, it's everybody's aimed at this kind of thing since, and there've been several movies that have tapped it well and done this well. I think this is still the boss, and I think there's a reason that it has become as beloved as it is. It is it, wacky at times. It's very very outrageous in places. But holy cow, it just has its heart in the right place. That errant visit to Santa or we had to go to the Chinese restaurant that night and they sang mm-hmm. for us. Or This is how nostalgia is done right. We talk about nostalgia on the show a lot. I think Gremlins gets it right, too, even though it's a contemporary film for 1984. That, to me, feels like a, nostal- a movie that's nostalgic for an earlier time without hammering it and killing it. Darren McGavin and Melinda Dillon as the parents, two of my favorite movie parents ever. We've covered these actors before. They are. I, I can't wait till we cover The Natural because Darren McGavin is so damn good in that. And Melinda Dillon, we've covered in, in Close Encounters and men, one of the best movie moms of the decade. She's terrific in this. I, I adore this movie. I still think it's funny. So, hey, speaking of nostalgia, our second to last film this week is one that is beloved in the horror community. I think we need to approach this from the proper socio-political perspective, Drew. We covered how Tootsie deals with uh, gender roles. And then we also deal with like Victor Victoria and Yentl. And now it's time, ladies and gentlemen, to discuss Sleepaway Camp. Oh boy. Welcome to Sleepaway Camp. Just when you thought you had seen it all, something new is waiting to scare you to death. Sleepaway Camp. You won't be coming home. Turn the wheel! Sleepaway Camp, rated R. Friday the 13th, done much cheaper, much goofier, much sloppier, but still a hell of a lot of fun. And boy, what an ending. I'm going to I'm going to tread lightly. I understand the affection that many people have for it. I do. I know Eric Vespi adores this movie. Adores. I, there are things that I actually like about this film. I think my favorite thing about the movie is the way the kids in the film are kids. It's a summer camp full of children and they all look and act like children for the most part and that is so unusual in this era that it does kind of stand out and make it feel a little bit more real but that ending i think if you actually listen all the information's there but it's told by a madman robert hiltzik who wrote and directed this film is a madman and he built everything for the last shot of the movie which is supposed to be a shocking transgressive moment that there are still arguments. I, I see Felissa Rose, the actress who's involved in that final moment, all the time talk about how it handles the portrayal of trans people. And there's people that are offended by it, people who are upset by it, people who consider it empowering, people who have repurposed it, people who have claimed it as their own, people who have rejected it. And bottom line, Robert Hiltzik did zero work to understand actual trans people, anything about the lifestyle of a trans person, how it happened. This is not that. And so... That conversation, while I understand why people want to have it about this movie, cannot seriously be had because the text isn't there. It is not a movie about that. It's a movie about a crazy woman who raises her child as a twist ending waiting to happen. And that's it. That's that's what it's about. It's an entertaining shock value ending, but I uh, I would politely uh, disagree if you tell me it has any uh, yeah, any kind does. of subtext regarding trans people. I I no, I don't think so. Uh, but as a as an iconic piece of horror junk, I think it's pretty fun. I think it definitely has some 
groaners and it definitely has some slow spots. But when it gets nasty, it has some pretty interesting kills. Uh, you know, it's one of those you got to check it off the list. You know, yeah, it's not it's, certainly it's, not one of the best horror films of the decade, but it's one everyone has to see at a, at a slumber party one night. Yeah, it's watchably goofy. I will give uh, bonus points to Desiree Gold, who shows up as Aunt Martha and phones in her performance from outer fucking space. It's never not watchable. I think it has benefited enormously from the conversation around that last shot. It actually benefits from the fact that it is not technically a very good shot, but because it's not very well pulled off, it's weird, and it does something to your brain. Somehow creepier because the body doubled and looks nothing like her. Yeah, you're, the, the uncanny valley part of your brain goes, okay, I don't know what I'm looking at, but it's probably a monster. I should run. In some way, the amateur version of that effect works better. So, yeah, it's... It's a naked guy with a mask. It's wacko. All right, so, hey, listen, we did sleep away camp, and now the uh, the dessert at the end of the episode is we get to talk about a terrific movie that I cannot get over after my revisit. I always knew I loved this movie. It's been a long time since I've seen it, and I am humbled and in awe of Terms of Endearment. Come to laugh. Would you like to come in? I'd rather stick needles in my eyes. Come to care. <laughs> oh, that's the first time I stopped hugging first. <laughs> Come to terms. Do you have any reaction at all to my telling you I love you? I was just inches from a clean getaway. Deborah Winger, Shirley MacLaine, and Jack Nicholson. Terms of endearment. You know, uh, whenever I say I liked it as a kid, it usually leads to I was bored stiff. I like this even at 15. As an adult, I absolutely love it. I went on Twitter and I said, what's the best tearjerker of the 1980s? And I, I think Terms of Endearment probably got 65 to 70% of the vote. This is a beautiful comedic drama about a mother, played by Shirley MacLaine, and her daughter, played by Deborah Winger, and the very fractious, difficult, lovable, and difficult relationship they have over the years dealing with the, the men in their lives, including Jack Nicholson, John Lithgow, Jeff Daniels. To say it struck a chord with a crowd uh, would be a massive understatement. It was a huge hit. It was a, an Oscar juggernaut. I mean, this was, I guess, the film of 1983, right? All things considered. I, I think definitely. And uh, adapted from Larry McMurtry's novel. And McMurtry's novel is very good and it's very dense and it, it's got a lot of great character work. It's definitely the blueprint for this. But we got to give credit to writer, director, producer James L. Brooks because I'd say his first three features as writer-director might be as good as any run anybody's ever had. High praise, but he reminds me of Wilder Diamond as a team. Just going to say, yeah, Billy Wilder, yep, yep. Because <laughs> he, he gets humanity. And he's fascinated by the way that relationships are defined. I think one of the great opening scenes in any film is this film. If you would have said to me two weeks ago before I revisited the film, what do you remember most from Terms of Endearment? It would be Shirley MacLaine has a, has, a, has a flip out scene late in the film that's just staggering. And the opening scene in which the silhouette of, of Shirley MacLaine is peeking in on her baby's crib and the baby is sleeping quietly and she gives the baby a little pinch and the baby starts crying and she feels better because the baby is crying. It's everything. That's the whole relationship. And then the rest of the movie is simply showing you how that relationship then plays out. I think it speaks to an insecurity that every parent has at some point, which is if the yeah. baby doesn't need me, is that a bad thing? Jack Nicholson, as Shirley MacLaine's on again, off again, uh, astronaut boyfriend. Boy, does Jack Nicholson add like a funny, slightly obnoxious, mildly endearing, macho dude. Jeff Daniels seems like a sweetheart, but isn't. 
John Lithgow seems ridiculously boring, but then turns out to be just grace personified. Uh, I know it's a very well-known film, but I'm hoping we can turn a few people onto this great. I don't think it's in the popular conversation right now. I don't think it's one of those movies that it gets passed down as a cool movie to go back and discover. And that's kind of a shame because I'm a big Shirley MacLaine fan and I'm fascinated by younger Shirley MacLaine when she hit the ground running. It's just all confidence. And, you know, it's like some actors try that and it's a little bit embarrassing. Shirley MacLaine did it and it was like force of nature. And I don't think as she aged, Hollywood really knew what to do with her. One of the reasons I love this film is the age she's at. She's 51 or 52 at one of the birthday party sequences in this film. She sees that as old. She sees that as something to be uh, horrified by. I'm just a couple of years from there now, and I don't feel terribly old. And looking at Shirley MacLaine now, looking at her as a contemporary, as a peer, looking at where Aurora is, I have a very different reaction to her because she is somebody who has an adult child by that point, somebody who's been by themselves for most of their adult lives. She doesn't have the husband who is Albert Brooks in one off-screen moment and then clearly died very, very young. My grandmother went through that. My mom's mom was not married from the time my mom was born. The entire time she was raising her had nobody in her life. Watching somebody who then for 35, 40 years has nobody in their life, it changes you. You become a certain person. And what I find most interesting in this movie, aside from the mother-daughter relationship, which is the heart of the film, that Nicholson's character, who doesn't exist in the book, was created for the movie. It was supposed to be Burt Reynolds, who is a fucking idiot turning this down. What... Nicholson does so well is he celebrates McLean. He recognizes what's wonderful about her. He's what's, a horny old dude, but he likes her. He, well, he's he, not, he doesn't treat her like a conquest. He likes her. She's in there. That Aurora that he falls in love with is in there, but he's got to get to it. Watching him break that wall down and watching how long it takes. And the fact that the movie takes place over 30 years makes their courtship really fascinating because it plays out over years, not over weeks, but years. They're wonderful together. I love Aurora's army of gentlemen callers who she keeps at arm's length, who they're not allowed to be her boyfriend, though. And I think Danny DeVito is terrific as one of those guys. I love those guys. And I love that she knows that she's not being fair to them. There's so many good things in this movie that other films turned into cliches. The single older woman who is just too good for her suitors. Imagine this one, Drew, the overbearing mother that the daughter loves but doesn't want to deal with. Oh, yeah. It's in millions of movies. And the punchline is this woman doesn't want to deal with her mom. This movie goes into she doesn't want to deal with her mom right now. And here's why. And here's when she does want to deal with her mom. And here's why it takes these things that are normally done as cliche. And it kind of explains how they become cliche. I didn't think I would dislike it. But I, you know, sometimes you go back to classics and you're like, yeah, it doesn't really hold up. Nope. Terms of Endearment holds up. And I just want to take one final moment to note that the score by Michael Gore is terrific. To me, one of the great scores of the early 80s. One best picture, director, screenplay. Uh, Shirley MacLaine won for actress, and, and Jack Nicholson won for supporting actor. Uh, John Lithgow and Deborah Winger were also nominated. We will be discussing Terms of Endearment uh, in our uh, recap episode. I believe it will rank high on our top 10 lists. 
All right, well, that is uh, that is it. And unbelievably, we have reached the end of November 1983. That means we've only got one more month of this year left. That's kind of hard for me to believe. It, it feels like we just started it. Thank you to everybody who listens uh, and tells other people to listen. Drew, do you have a podcast you want to recommend as we sign off? Uh, I do. I want to say uh, I love the Doughboys. And if you have not listened to them before, it is Mike Mitchell and Nick Weiger and the review of fast food chain restaurants. Uh, I've been on the show several times. They entertain me greatly. Uh, their chemistry is terrific. Please listen to the Doughboys. Very funny podcast. Do not listen if you're hungry. Uh, and I will also throw in uh, another recommendation for our old pals, Snyder and Bayer. Check out movie BS. Next time we are going to have uh, Harry's going to get dirty again. Uh, Michael Mann is going to make his most confusing film. John Travolta and Libby Newton-John are going to prove that Greece was a complete freaking accident. Mel Brooks remakes a classic and Meryl Streep's going to take a very uncomfortable shower when we do December 1983. <laughs>